Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic discussions of hanging and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. 29-year-old Lorenzo de' Medici had just been attacked in the middle of church. Bleeding from the neck, he hid behind the bronze doors of the sacristy of the Duomo in Florence. He prayed the doors would hold his attackers at bay, but he couldn't be sure. In fact, there was a lot Lorenzo didn't know that morning. He didn't know why he'd been attacked during Sunday Mass or why his assailants were bitter enough to do it during a church service. Not to mention the question of who was behind the attack or if they were about to go after other members of his family. He didn't even know the fate of his 24-year-old brother, Giuliano, who'd also been stabbed in the chaos. But there was one thing Lorenzo did know. He was a Medici, one of the most powerful banking families in Europe. He'd been raised as a ruler, a shrewd politician, and a prince, in all but title. Despite his wound and the rallying cries of his enemies outside the cathedral, calling the Medici cruel and corrupt, Lorenzo was certain he'd survive. Which meant that justice would come and it would be swift. In fact, Lorenzo de' Medici's retribution against the Pazzi conspiracy would be so vicious and so bloody that it made the conspiracy against him look fairly innocent. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our third episode on failed conspiracies, a series where we blow open the oh-shoots and what-ifs of history's biggest blunders. Today we're covering the Pazzi Conspiracy, a failed attempt to overthrow the powerful Medici family in Renaissance Florence. It was planned and executed by members of a rival banking family known as the Pazzi. In this episode, we'll explain the power struggles against the Medici family and meet the key players in the attempted coup. Then, we'll unravel the bloody consequences. Finally, since our whole episode is one big conspiracy, we'll end on something a little different. We'll dive into an alternate world where the plan succeeded. Had the Medici line ended in 1478, the world might look very different today. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. 
With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In the 15th century, Florence and other Italian cities were their own sovereign states. They had their own legal systems and elected officials, even their own armies. Yet the city shared one extremely powerful thread, the Catholic Church, which made the Pope just as much a political leader as a religious one. At the time, the Pope had major influence all over Europe. He counseled the various heads of state and controlled all the money and property owned by the Catholic Church. His power extended so far that he functioned as a president of sorts. Only, instead of working with the Senate, he delegated to his cardinals and bishops, who communicated directly with local governments. The political systems throughout Europe had advanced a bit since the Middle Ages, but some royal Italian families still remained. In some cities, government positions were only open to those with noble lineage. Today, we have clear boundaries between royal families, elected officials, and religious leaders. But in this era, everything was intertwined. Most of the wealthy and royal families were connected by marriage or blood, and their sons often went on to become prominent religious figures, like bishops or even the pope. All of these people influenced one another's decisions, usually for personal or familial gain. This was certainly the case in Florence. The city was nominally a republic made up of prominent men chosen by lottery. After they were elected, they served on a board similar to a city council for two months at a time. 
Except, the lottery wasn't quite fair. The richest, most powerful families had a lot of influence over it, and what matters the council used its powers for. Since their service only lasted two months, no single council member became that influential. The businessmen throughout Florence were the real power brokers. This created an atmosphere in the city where everyone jockeyed for positions of authority via wealth, the church, and politics. The Pazzi conspiracy would involve men from all of these arenas. In 1477, one of the most powerful business families in Florence was the House of Medici. They owned a prominent banking institution with branches all over Europe. In fact, they were one of the richest families on the continent. Medici men were famous for various reasons, like being shrewd in business and arranging advantageous marriages, and of course, for their dangerous sense of ambition. Even though they were technically private citizens, not royals, the Medici were still viewed as the lords and ladies of Florence. They had a grand palace, were respected patrons of the arts, and often traveled with armed security. But they weren't the only bankers in Florence. There was also the Pazzi family. Although they weren't quite as powerful or famous, they were well-connected. The Medici and the Pazzi often did business together and occasionally shared investments. They were even related by marriage. As dignified Italian families, they were certainly alike. But Florence wasn't big enough for the both of them. In 1477, the future of the Medici dynasty lay in the hands of 28-year-old Lorenzo and his 24-year-old brother, Giuliano. Since the death of their father eight years prior, Lorenzo had been head of the family and the business. He earned the nickname Lorenzo the Magnificent for his prowess in business and politics. Lorenzo was often referred to as the unofficial ruler of Florence. Despite not being of noble lineage or joining the ranks of the church, Lorenzo was able to maintain his power over the city through his personal connections. And money, of course. Both, though, he knew, were subject to change with his reputation. Lorenzo was constantly paranoid about who held the most influence in Florence, and if others were usurping his own. As such, he felt the need to constantly exert his power in order to retain it. Lorenzo's younger brother, Giuliano, was considered far more charming and handsome than Lorenzo, but he wasn't nearly as savvy. This made him just enough of a threat to those outside the Medici family, so he was never discounted by the important power brokers of Florence. But like all influential men, these brothers had enemies. Chief among them, Pope Sixtus IV. He was extremely nepotistic, using his power to make many of his family members cardinals or bishops. One was a nephew named Girolamo Riario. In fact, some scholars believe Riario may have actually been the Pope's natural son. In 1473, the Pope tried to purchase the town of Imola in modern-day Bologna to give to Riario. But Lorenzo de' Medici also wanted to purchase Imola and incorporate it into Florence. He hoped it would increase both his and the city's reputation. 
At the time, the Medici Bank was the official bank of the papacy, but Lorenzo refused to approve the loan since he wanted the land for himself. So the Pope went to his competitors, the Pazzi Bank, instead. And when Lorenzo asked the Pazzi not to grant the loan, they did so anyway. The Pope was clearly outraged that Lorenzo would try and meddle in his affairs, so he retaliated. In 1474, the Pazzi Bank became the favored papal bank instead, and he slapped the Medici Bank with an audit to boot. Then, as one last show of force, the Pope appointed one of the Pazzi's allies, a man named Francesco Salviati, as the Archbishop of Pisa. Since Pisa was only 50 miles from Florence, Lorenzo saw this as a great threat to his power. Remember, a big part of Lorenzo's power was his perceived influence. If everyone knew that Pisa was being controlled without his involvement, that perception would quickly vanish. So Lorenzo fought back, turning his ire against the Pazzi. In 1477, Lorenzo ushered in a new bill. It stated that if a woman's father passed and she had no brother, the family fortune would go to the next male kin, like a cousin, instead of her. But the law was far more personal. It was aimed specifically at a woman named Beatrice Borrome. She had married into the Pazzi family, and Lorenzo wanted to make sure her father's fortune did not end up in the Pazzi's hands. While it's never been made clear, some people believe this incident was the final straw that put the Pazzi conspiracy into motion. If the Pazzi didn't put an end to the Medici now, they would continue to amass power and obstruct their plans for decades to come. In the summer of 1477, a group of powerful men who were against the Medici met Pope Sixtus IV. Francesco de Pazzi, Salviati, the Archbishop of Pisa, and Riario, the Lord of Imola. Lorenzo was the main target, but if they left Giuliano alive for too long, they knew he'd seek revenge. The men decided both brothers would have to go in one fell swoop. Once they were dead, Florence would be free for the taking. After all, they had the support of the Pope. There was no need to worry about backlash from the church. Next, they assembled a small, secret army, just in case Medici allies took up arms and started a civil war. The Pope also planned to send additional troops to secure the city in case of an uprising. But this was just a fail-safe. The conspirators believed that once the Medici brothers were dead, their allies would surrender easily. Florence would accept the Pazzi as the new most powerful bankers in the city. They would be the seat of power that the city answered to. The plotters figured it'd be best to kill the brothers on their visit to Rome in March 1478. It was then that Lorenzo was scheduled to be making a visit for Easter. But when March came around, Lorenzo backed out of the trip to Rome. The co-conspirators realized the Medici were a moving target. They'd need more than one opportunity for the assassination. 
So, the conspirators allied themselves with a few other Medici enemies, hoping to gain more intel. But the more people they told, the more likely a leak became. They had to kill the brothers before too many people knew of their plan. They chose April 19, 1478, as the new date for the double homicide. Lorenzo would be at his villa just north of Florence, hosting a lunch for the Pope's nephew. Since the Pazzi family also had a villa in the area, it was a perfect headquarters for the attack. Coming up, an assassin has a last-minute change of heart. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By spring of 1478, the anti-Medici sentiment of the Pazzi family and Pope Sixtus IV had boiled over. They hatched a second plan to kill both Lorenzo and his younger brother that April. But this time, it was Giuliano de' Medici who didn't show up. The plan was called off once again. The conspirators realized they needed to arrange the meeting themselves, and it had to be one so lucrative that neither brother would dare miss it. Salviati, the Archbishop of Pisa, wrote to Lorenzo saying a cardinal wanted to visit the Medici Palace in Florence. He was hoping to take a look at the family's art collection. Flattered, Lorenzo arranged a lunch for the following Sunday, April 26, 1478. The plan was for everyone to attend Mass and then return to the Medici's Palace for lunch. That's where the assassination would take place. A few trusted members of the conspiracy would do the deed. The Count of Montesecco was assigned to Lorenzo and Francesco de Pazzi, along with a Florentine nobleman named Bernardo Baroncelli, would take out Giuliano. Once both were dead, 
They'd announce the news and take the city in victory. But at some point on the morning of April 26th, the plotters learned that Giuliano de' Medici would not be attending lunch after church that day. They were left scrambling and without much time to pivot. Soldiers were already on their way from Perugia, just south of Florence, to prepare for opposition. Out of time and options, the conspirators made a bold choice. They'd killed the brothers inside the Duomo Cathedral during Mass. But murder in the house of God would not be an easy task. When the Count of Montesecco heard of this change in plans, he refused to murder on church grounds and backed out last minute. Surprisingly, two priests offered to take his place. Giuliano nearly thwarted the conspiracy with his unexpected absence once again. When the others got to the cathedral, he was nowhere to be found. According to one account, Francesco de Pazzi and another conspirator, Bernardo Baroncelli, then went back to the Medici's palace to look for him. They found him in bed feeling unwell, but somehow managed to talk him into joining them for mass. They even gave him a playful hug on the walk to the cathedral. Their true reason for the embrace was as nefarious as their plot, to find out whether Giuliano was wearing armor beneath his clothing. The Medici knew they had enemies, so this could have happened often. Although today, Giuliano was armor-free. Back in the church, the plotters quickly agreed on a key point in the service as their cue. And when that moment came, the assailants sprang into action. In the moments leading up to the attack, Francesco de Pazzi's brother, Guglielmo, was talking to Lorenzo. But once it began, he screamed that he was innocent, that he was sorry, and that he knew nothing about this attack. It might seem like a strange reaction, but Guglielmo was conflicted. While he was a member of the Pazzi family, he was also married to Lorenzo's sister, Bianca. To this day, it's unclear if the other members of the Pazzi family knew about the plot. While Guglielmo maintained his ignorance, Baroncelli stabbed Giuliano. Francesco de Pazzi joined him, piercing Giuliano with his dagger repeatedly. Francesco worked himself into such a frenzy that he even stabbed himself in the thigh accidentally. Meanwhile, chaos ensued inside the Duomo. Worshippers screamed and fled, the din echoing around the cavernous room. Giuliano was stabbed somewhere between 12 and 19 times. He died almost instantly, right there in the church. Lorenzo was luckier than his brother. The two priests assigned to kill him were inexperienced with fighting and weapons. In the scuffle, one priest grabbed Lorenzo by the shoulder before taking aim. When Lorenzo felt the man's grip, he dodged out of the way. He ended up with a gash on his neck, but it wasn't life-threatening. Lorenzo grabbed a sword and fought off the two priests. Then a friend pulled him from the melee. They escaped to the sacristy, where a priest prepares his sermons and barricaded themselves inside. They were terrified, but for the time being, safe. After the attack, a frantic energy spread across Florence. The two priests and Baroncelli fled the city. Meanwhile, 
Francesco de Pazzi went home to tend to the wound in his thigh. Archbishop Salviati and a friend named Jacopo Bracciolini arrived at the government palace for the next phase of the plan. They were accompanied by 30 mercenary soldiers from Perugia. They intended to turn the town council to their side by force if necessary. Salviati told the palace guards he was there to deliver a message from the Pope. It was meant for Caesar Petrucci, the head of government. Once Salviati got to Petrucci, he tried to distract him as the mercenary soldiers took control of the building. But things got muddled quickly. Petrucci caught sight of Bracciolini, who he realized had no reason to be there. He could tell something was afoot. The mercenary soldiers, who were unfamiliar with the layout of the palace, were quickly trapped by the palace guards. Then, Petrucci ordered that bells be rung in the town square. He needed to signal Florence was under attack. Though tensions were mounting, surprisingly, only an hour or two had gone by since the plan was incited within the Duomo. Lorenzo was still hiding in the sacristy, but he wouldn't have to for much longer. In the wake of the attack, associates closest to the Medici had gone to their palace to regroup. Then, they went back to the Duomo to rescue Lorenzo. They banged on the doors of the sacristy, but Lorenzo and his group couldn't tell if those on the outside were friends or foes. So Sigismondo della Stufa, a Medici ally, found a staircase from the sacristy to the organ gallery. There, he could look down on the interior of the church and see that those who had come to their rescue were indeed their allies. It was at this moment that De La Stufa saw Giuliano dead in a pool of his own blood. There was no time for Lorenzo to mourn or even to cover his brother's body. Instead, Lorenzo's friends quickly took him back to the Medici Palace to tend to his wounds. Meanwhile, Jacopo de Pazzi and some 100 of his soldiers rode through the streets. They tried to galvanize the public to rise up against the Medici. But despite his hopes of arriving as Florence's white knight and favorable new leader, Jacopo had made a fatal mistake, hiring soldiers from Perugia. When the Florentine people looked at Jacopo de Pazzi and his small mercenary army, they didn't see someone fighting for them. They saw what looked like an invader with a foreign army. The conspirators thought the people would support them in overthrowing the powerful, out-of-touch Medici. But the public didn't have much stake in this fight. This was between the Pazzi and the Medici. There were few first-hand accounts of how the people of Florence actually felt about the power struggles amongst the elite. But as best we can make out, the general public was seemingly indifferent. Whether the Pope got a loan from a Pazzi or a Medici bank didn't affect them at all. This was purely an upper-class conflict, which only proved the Pazzi were the ones out of touch. In fact, by now, the reality that the Pazzi had tried to upend the Medici made the family the more offensive of the two groups. Lorenzo might have been too powerful, but the Pazzi and their allies had just committed murder in a holy place. If a citizen wasn't safe at church, they weren't safe anywhere. 
And if the Medici weren't safe, then no one was. Ironically, the conspirators' poorly executed plan made the Medici look sympathetic. To make matters worse for the conspirators, the additional soldiers sent by the Pope never arrived. They'd caught wind of the plot's failure and turned around before ever entering Florence. Pazzi allies still inside the city were on their own. Jacopo de Pazzi arrived at the government building. There, he expected to be greeted by Archbishop Salviati as the new head of the government. Instead, he learned that the archbishop had been imprisoned. The palace guards attacked Jacopo de Pazzi and his men by throwing stones at them. As they retreated from the attack, Jacopo began to understand the message. His coup had failed. That afternoon, he fled the city. In addition to Archbishop Salviati and his conspirator, Jacopo Bracciolini, who were already imprisoned, the government found and captured Francesco de Pazzi as well. Under ordinary circumstances, these men might have received a trial for their crimes, but their actions had sparked a state of emergency, meaning the government was able to bypass its own laws. In light of this, a decision was made to execute the conspirators that same day. No one argued against it. Bracciolini, Salviati's accomplice, was hanged out a high window overlooking the Piazza della Signoria. He was followed by Francesco de Pazzi and Archbishop Salviati. This was intentional so all of Florence could see what had become of its traitors. Much of the mercenary army, who'd been trapped in the government building, were slaughtered. By the end of the day, as many as 80 men were hanging from windows in Florence. But the bloodshed had only just begun. Coming up, Lorenzo goes to war with the Pope. Now, back to the story. On Sunday, April 26, 1478, the men behind the Pazzi conspiracy attempted to murder 29-year-old Lorenzo de Medici. While they succeeded in killing his 24-year-old brother Giuliano, the older Medici survived as Florence reeled. While the Pazzi family believed the people of Florence would happily take their side, the city turned against them. Many of the conspirators were executed that day. The following morning, the retribution continued, starting with Guglielmo de Pazzi. While Lorenzo's brother-in-law had loudly proclaimed his innocence at the moment of the attack, he nonetheless fled. He and his wife Bianca holed up at the Medici Palace, where she begged Lorenzo to spare his life. Lorenzo agreed, but banished him from the city. Soon after, almost all of the male members of the Pazzi family were arrested. It didn't matter if they were involved or even knew about the conspiracy. The Pazzi were now enemies of Florence. Some were banished, some imprisoned, and some faced the same grim outcome of those before them, execution. The two priests who'd failed to kill Lorenzo sought refuge in a monastery for several days. They were eventually captured, mutilated, and hanged on May 3, 1478. But the most shocking fate befell Jacopo de Pazzi. He was captured by peasants just outside of Florence. 
guardsmen then took him back to the city where he reportedly confessed to everything, including orchestrating the plot and attempting to overthrow the government. He was hanged and buried in the family crypt. But it was Jacopo's religious internment that caused the uproar. The clergy ended up reburying him elsewhere in the city, and later on, a few young boys dug up his corpse and dragged it through town before throwing it into the Arno River. Lorenzo de' Medici then set about destroying the Pazzi legacy. The name Pazzi was expunged from all official records. The family crest, wherever it appeared, was painted over. Those surviving members of the family were forced to change their legal surnames. Their wealth was seized by the government, and their valuable belongings were put up for auction. A month after the attack, the Florentine government passed a law stating that any man whose daughter married a Pazzi or took a Pazzi woman as his wife would lose the right to hold office. This was Lorenzo's attempt to stamp out the Pazzi line for good. Bankrupt and shunned from society, the living Pazzi family members were as good as dead, even if they eked out a meager existence in Florence. Although, three years later, by 1481, this punishment began to lose its context. As the attack faded from people's minds, these rules started to look a little harsh. Perhaps in light of this, Lorenzo and his allies showed some mercy by lifting the official ban on marriage to Pazzi women. Still, few men of importance would align themselves with such a sullied family. Meanwhile, Lorenzo continued to grow his power and influence. He exacted revenge on almost everyone who tried to take him down. But one major original conspirator remained, Pope Sixtus IV. It's unclear just how involved the Pope was in the conspiracy. He claimed that he wanted a bloodless coup without murder. But the fact that he sent troops to the conspirators' aid makes it appear he supported the plan. Some say, though, that he believed the attack was taking place at the Medici Palace, not in the cathedral. Murder in a church was something that Florentines assumed he'd wholeheartedly condemn. Instead, though, the Pope condemned what the people of Florence had done. He criticized the killing of the archbishop and priests affiliated with the Pazzi. By law, the clergyman should have received some kind of trial in the church. Instead, to the Pope's great objection, they were killed by mob justice. In light of this, a month and a half after the attack in the Duomo, the Pope excommunicated Lorenzo and interdicted the entire city of Florence. Florentines found this double standard outrageous. The Pope didn't seem to care about murder in a church, but suddenly wanted to intervene when the people sought righteous retribution. It was hypocritical at best. It's unclear how many priests actually followed the interdict order. It's likely that Florentines still found ways to attend church on Sundays. But still, the symbolism of the rebuke from Rome stung. Afterward, Lorenzo and Pope Sixtus IV began exchanging angry letters. The Pope demanded that Lorenzo ask for forgiveness on behalf of Florence, primarily for killing the archbishop and the priests. 
He also demanded that Florence pay his office 100,000 florins, which would have been about $15 million today, or he could hand over three fortresses in the city's territory. He also demanded that they dedicate a fresco of the hanged Salviati, build a chapel in commemoration of the murdered priests, and celebrate mass in their honor. Lorenzo was unreceptive to the Pope's demands. His most important asset was his perceived stature and his pride. He wasn't willing to cave to the enemy's demands, even if that enemy was the Pope. To escalate the war, Pope Sixtus allied himself with King Ferdinand I of Naples, who invaded Florence on his behalf. But Lorenzo was smart. He might never convince the Pope to like him, but the King of Naples, on the other hand, was a reasonable man. In a Trojan horse mission of sorts, Lorenzo went to Naples and voluntarily became Ferdinand's prisoner. While he was there, he charmed the man. The two became allies, if not friends. Perhaps realizing they were at a stalemate, by 1480, the Pope tried to backpedal. He said that if Florence asked for his forgiveness, he'd lift the interdict. And soon, 12 prominent delegates rode into Rome and made the formal apology. Lorenzo was not among them, but the Pope kept his word. The interdict was lifted, and the silent war between Florence and the Pope was finally over. In an ironic turn, after Lorenzo de' Medici died in 1492, his second son, Giovanni, rose through the ranks of the church to become Pope Leo X. In 1531, Giuliano's son, Giulio, became Pope Clement VII. The Medici were now more powerful than ever before, and they continued to rule Florence for multiple generations until 1737. But what if they hadn't? Let's consider what might have happened if both Giuliano and Lorenzo had been killed that day in the church. If the Pazzi family had unseated the Medici, the line of papal succession might look completely different today. Without Lorenzo alive to maintain the family's stature, Giovanni and Giulio would never have become pope. Or through a more cultural lens, the world may have missed its share of fine art. Lorenzo, like many in the Medici family, was a great patron of the arts. He supported artists like Leonardo da Vinci and Sandro Botticelli. Had the Pazzi conspiracy succeeded, it's possible that many of their great works wouldn't have seen the light of day. We might not know of Botticelli's famous painting, La Primavera, which was created for Lorenzo's cousin, or The Birth of Venus, the iconic image of the goddess standing in an open seashell with her flowing red hair. If Lorenzo de' Medici had died in 1478, Botticelli might have lived and died in obscurity. Same goes for da Vinci. Imagine a world without the Mona Lisa or his painting The Last Supper. Da Vinci went on to inspire countless other artists, including Michelangelo, who painted the Sistine Chapel. Though his observations and theories were never published, da Vinci was an avid scientist as well. He was a master of many disciplines and epitomized the spirit of a forward-thinking Italy. 
he and his contemporaries are the inspiration for the saying, Renaissance man. Not to mention, da Vinci had quite the impact on medical sciences. His research helped to make leaps and bounds in both neuroanatomy and neurophysiology. If he remained unknown, we might be decades or even centuries behind in understanding the human nervous system. On top of that, he's credited with coming up with some critical inventions like scuba gear and the parachute. The Medici, however complicated their legacy, had an impact on European society that extended far beyond the arts. Some say they established what we know today as the middle class. They inspired many of the concepts used in modern banking. And they brought the world out of the Dark Ages by funding Italy's first public library. The plotters of the Pazzi conspiracy certainly tried to eliminate the Medici, but they weren't able to. If they had, the world we know today might be a very different place. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. For more information on the Pazzi Conspiracy, uh, amongst the many sources we used, we found April Blood by Loro Martinez extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Lizzie Logan, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.